Father in heaven, fill us with your spirit again as we come to your word to open our hearts, the eyes of our hearts to see marvelous things in your law and, Father, to be strengthened that we may serve you the way our spiritual fathers and mothers have when they were most faithful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. What are they quoting? Psalm 2. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. For what would you have prayed had you been subjected to the treatment that Peter and John endured and that they would? Endure and continue to endure at the hands of the religious authorities that day, and then been released with instructions never to mention the name of Jesus again. For what would you have prayed? I think I likely would have found myself praying to the Lord to spare me, to spare the church from further persecution to keep me from ever having to spend another night in jail for the gospel, to keep the authorities from hurting me. Every Thanksgiving, or any time we sing that hymn entitled, We Gather Together, I'm reminded about the change that was made in the English translation of that classic Dutch hymn. I grew up, as many of you know, in the Dutch Reformed tradition, where we sang every Thanksgiving the lines, We all do extol thee, thou leader triumphant, and pray that thou still our defender wilt be. Let thy congregation escape tribulation. Thy name be ever praised. O Lord, make us free. But since 
the move a couple of decades ago from the Dutch Reformed into the Presbyterian Reformed circles, I've had to adjust my singing of that hymn. Theodore Baker's 1917 translation, which was woven right into my childhood psyche by its repeated singing, says, Let thy congregation escape tribulation. But from our Trinity hymnal, we sing instead, Let thy congregation endure through tribulation. At first blush, the difference may seem picayune, and so I thought the first time I awkwardly jammed that extra syllable into that measure. But of course, it is no such thing. The difference is huge. One is the way of Jesus and the apostles, the other tries to avoid the way of Christ and our spiritual fathers and mothers before us, the way that Jesus says leads to him and to heaven. It is not by escaping tribulation, but by enduring tribulation, and more than enduring it, enduring it well, triumphing over it and through it that we follow the path that our Savior trod. And the way we endure tribulation well, one of the main ways anyway, a very important way, is with boldness. That's what the apostles asked for and their friends when tribulation and trouble and persecution came to them. Not that they might escape it, but that they might endure it, and more than endure it, continue boldly and confidently and courageously in it. Who can doubt that among the weaknesses that retard the church of our day and place the most, fear, the absence of courage and confidence and boldness must be chief. This has always been the case when the church has appeared the weakest. Here is Charles Spurgeon in his own day, preaching out of his own boldness and declaring that holy boldness honors the gospel. In the olden times, he went on to illustrate, when oriental despots had things pretty much their own way, they expected all ambassadors from the West to lay their mouths in the dust if permitted to appear before his celestial brightness, the brother of the sun and the cousin of the moon. Money-loving traders agreed to all this and ate dust as readily as reptiles. But when England sent her ambassadors abroad, the daring islanders stood bolt upright. They were told that they could not be indulged with a vision of the brother of the sun and cousin of the moon without going down on their hands and knees. Very well, said the Englishman, we will dispense with the luxury. But tell his celestial splendor that very likely his serenity will hear our cannon at his palace gates before long and that their booming is not quite so harmless as the cooing of his sublimities 
doves. The ambassadors of the British crown were no cringing petitioners. The British Empire rose in respect in the sight of the Oriental nations. Our cowardice, the prince of preachers continued, has subjected the gospel to contempt. Jesus was humble, yes, and his servants must not be proud. But Jesus was never cowardly, nor must his servants be. There was no braver man than Christ. He could stoop to save a soul, but he would stoop to nothing by which his character might be compromised or truth and righteousness insulted. To preach the gospel boldly is to deliver it as such a message ought to be delivered. Blush to preach the dying Savior? Apologize for for talking about the Son of God condescending to be made man that he might redeem us from all iniquity? Never! Oh, by the grace of God, let us purpose with Paul to be yet more bold that the gospel may be yet more fully preached throughout all the ranks of mankind. Spurgeon, though dead, still speaks, doesn't he, to us. We must have boldness. We must ask for boldness, and then we must bring Christ to the world with boldness. Boldly. That should come as no surprise to us, considering where we've been in God's holy word lately. Remember just recently, Peter boldly preaching Christ at Pentecost. Earlier here in Acts, here in our morning services. And in the evening worship, we've been studying Joshua these days together, where God says, be strong and courageous, over and again with a, do not be terrified, thrown in for good measure. Or remember this from our time together in Isaiah a few years ago, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And to the opposite side, while making our way through numbers, earlier in that same evening series, we came to Kadesh Barnea, where the knees of God's people melted at the report of ten cowardly spies, resulting in 38 more years of wandering in the wilderness and the loss to hell of an entire generation. Or, from our most recent morning series in Luke's first volume, Acts, of course, being his second, Peter's cowardice in the face of a servant girl. This matter of courage or Cowardice of boldness or bashfulness carries real consequences for us and for our children and for entire generations of the church, as we can easily demonstrate from any number of places in the Scripture. The book of Revelation alone, chapter 21, verse 8, is enough to make the point, for there we learn that the cowardly will find themselves in the lake of fire with the faithless and the detestable and the murderers, and the sexually immoral, and the liars, and idolaters, and so on. So we simply must be bold, you see. 
we must be bold. Dear flock, we must be courageous. The kind of church that we pass on to our children. The kind of church we'll be remembered as a hundred years from now depends, hangs on our being bold. Not proud, as Spurgeon reminds us. And let us be very careful not to confuse the two. Not proud, but bold. So we need to ask for the same thing the apostles prayed for. Make us bold Christians. And may bold Christians, may we be bold Christians for the very reason given in this prayer for boldness that they prayed and we just read. First, we must be bold because of who our God is. In verse 24, they begin their prayer with this. Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is a very remarkable title that they use for God, by the way. It's a very striking thing that they say. They don't call him Father. They don't cry out Jesus. But Sovereign Lord, they say. Threatened with imprisonment possibly with beatings or even death, what they needed to know, what they needed to remind themselves of in prayer, and we've studied this before, haven't we, the reflexive effect of prayer, the effect that prayer has on us. I say in prayer they had to be reminded. uh, What they needed to remember, that this is their God. That this is your God, Christian, able to deal with any threat. He is sovereign Lord. Our God is not some soft and cuddly, pliable, easygoing man upstairs of popular Americana. He is the sovereign of the universe who spoke into being by the power of his word all that your eye can see and the vast cosmos that your eyes Cannot. He's the sovereign Lord. And as the Apostle Paul rhetorically asks in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? When I'm his servant and I'm doing his work, when I'm his message, carrying his message, what can man do to me? If only we would keep before our eyes always this great and awesome God of ours, we would, we would never falter. Years ago, when I was a new preacher, I met with a more seasoned pastor. Actually, I helped him change a set of brakes on his car during Christmas break in Wisconsin. And after, uh, after that, he dropped me off at the house, but asked before I got out of the car if he could pray for me and pray for the ministry in Owensboro. He bowed his head, and I mine with him, and he prayed that I, like David, in Psalm 16, would set the Lord always before me. In other words, that I would live with an active consciousness of being in the presence of the sovereign Lord who loves me and who rules over all things. With this result, as David says, 
I've set the Lord before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Alas, I have not always lived in accordance with that prayer that that faithful pastor prayed for me. Though I will tell you that the Lord has been pleased to answer that prayer as well. And he will keep you from being shaken, from being moved, if you will do the same. Set the Lord always before you. How shall you do that? Well, the same way they did here in Acts chapter 4. By confessing him. By bringing his sovereignty to your minds often. By praying the way they prayed and asking God to make this the burning conviction of your heart. Setting the Lord before you in the morning when you get up. Setting the Lord before you in the evening when you lie down. Setting the Lord before you before you start your day at home. Setting the Lord before you before you start your day at the office or on the line. Get some sense of the of the maker of heaven and of, of heaven and earth set him before you and when the opportunity comes to speak to another person about the gospel set him before your sight again second we must be bold because our god knows he always has known his enemies, even before his enemies were born. This is why the apostles could quote from Psalm 2, an ancient psalm, already ancient by their day, and apply it directly to the enemies of God in their own. God, verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Anointed, for truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. The enemies of God in the Apostles' day, they were all known to God. He knew them all completely. A predictable enemy, therefore. And so a much less frightful enemy. Scripture has always known what opposition we would face. This is no surprise to Scripture, to the Lord, that we will and have enemies. And what is more, our enemies are not really, if you think carefully about it and consider what they just prayed, they're not really against us. They're against God. Against the Lord, against his anointed We just happen to suffer for it because we're the closest thing to God that they can reach with their fists. No surprise there either. Before he left the world, Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. But he also said, and lo, I am with you always. What that means, my brothers and sisters, is that when we suffer as Christians, we suffer with Christ and for the sake of Christ. 
And that, dear flock, is high privilege. As we'll read in the next chapter, it's a matter of rejoicing, actually, for us to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It's a matter of rejoicing. It's a matter of rejoicing. It is but one more of the great ironies of the Christian faith that it is our honor to be dishonored for the sake of Christ. So we must be bold because of who God is, because of what God knows, always has known, his enemies and ours. Third, we must be bold because God controls. He controls all things, all peoples, even his enemies. Verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Even at the cross, the enemies who nailed Jesus to the tree were utterly and completely under God's command. Instruments of his will. The same goes for his enemies and therefore your enemies today. The people we often fear in this world. Whose opinions of us matter way too much to us. The people we fear to offend and therefore do not speak to about the gospel curb our language around lest we should be labeled one of those Christians. What can they do to you? They can't harm you. They're in God's hands. Even better, think of this. Even their rebellion ends up serving God's purposes. When they nailed Jesus to the tree, they were simply accomplishing God's will, what God had intended for them to do. By persecuting the apostles, what they were doing was giving the apostles the opportunity to exercise their faith, to lay up treasure in heaven, to be honored by suffering for the name. And Tertullian's ancient remark that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church is just as true today as ever it was. You know, it's almost universally recognized by everyone in the world except apparently for the Chinese government itself by, the, by that the more they persecute Christians... In China, the more they lock them up and torture them in horrific ways and even kill them, the more the church grows in China. Brothers and sisters, your worst, your unbelieving enemy is squarely in the hand of God. Don't fear him. Okay, he's vicious, he's got teeth, bared and growling, and he's snapping, but look closely enough and you'll see around his neck a collar and hook to that collar a leash, and on the other hand of that leash, a hand, the hand of God. 
Bold because of who God is. Bold because God knows. Bold because God controls. And finally, fourth, we must be bold because God is with us. And he's supplying us all we need. They prayed, verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And God granted it to them. God answered their prayer. How? Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God sent them the Spirit. That's how he answered that prayer, sent the Holy Spirit. It was he whom they needed if they would continue to speak with boldness. And it is he whom you need. And here's the really amazing news. You have him. You have the same Holy Spirit that they did. That same Holy Spirit lives in you as lived in them, fills you as filled them. God's resources are as surely and fully available to you right now as they were to them. You need only ask. And with the Holy Spirit working in and through them, they turn the world of their day upside down. They were the church of their their day You are the church of your day, the bride of Christ. And God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I learned last week listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg about the Martyrs Memorial in Oxford, England, that some of you already know about and maybe have even seen in person. I knew about the Martyrs. I didn't know about the memorial. Built in 1843, it commemorates events that were already, by that time, 300 years old. The burning at the stake of Bishop's Latimer and Ridley on October 16, 1555, and Archbishop uh, Cranmer later, who had been given longer to appeal, was forced to watch those burnings and wrote a recantation. You may remember the boldness of Ridley and Latimer in life and in death. Latimer died much more quickly as the flames rose. Ridley had to beg for more fire because only his lower body was burning. Latimer encouraged Ridley from his stake, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. He was quoting the Apostle Paul. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Cranmer, however, one of those, as I say, who were watching the burnings, one of whose prayers, by the way, we use from time to time here in our own worship, he faltered in his boldness. Remember I mentioned that he recanted upon witnessing Ridley's excruciating death. 
He signed his name to documents in which he repudiated his Protestant doctrines and pledged his allegiance to the Pope and to the Roman doctrine of the Mass. And because his recantation was so abject and so complete, he was given the opportunity the morning of his death to address a great congregation assembled for the occasion in the university church. The authorities were more than happy to have him do that because, you see, they had prepared his manuscript for him. And at the time, I would convey to you all the details of the story. It's a truly riveting one, but the gist of it is this. He didn't stick to the text. Instead, he used the opportunity publicly to recant his recantation and did so with such a surge of energy and boldness as can only be explained, I think, as a work of the Holy Spirit. He was dragged off the platform as quickly as possible and to the stake when the authorities figure out, figured out what he was doing. One biographer writes, The crowd arrived at the place where Latimer and Ridley had suffered six months before. Fire was put to the wood. In the flames, Cranmer achieved a final serenity, and he fulfilled the purpose which he had made in his last shouts in the church. For as much as my hand has offended, writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall first be punished therefore. And he stretched it out into the fire for the spectators to see. He repeated while he could, his unworthy right hand. This hand hath offended, and also while he could, the dying words of the first martyr will come to him in good time. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You know I could multiply those histories, and I hope you know that mainly because you yourselves are so well acquainted with the stories, the histories of the martyrs who have boldly gone before us. But here's my point. You and I must find our own place in their train. In this history, we must exercise this same boldness, whether it may someday lead us too to the stake, or whether it merely costs us the favor of unbelieving friends or neighbors, maybe even a job or promotion or money or things. I want to address myself to you young people, especially here in the sanctuary this morning. Listen carefully and do this. Do something bold for Christ. Do something bold for Christ now and, and then do it again. And then do another bold thing. Develop that habit early before you develop or rather slide into the habit of simply following the path of least resistance. Take a bold stand, whatever it is. I know of one young man 
who, when filling out job applications, informed a particularly interested potential employer that he could not work on Sundays. Why not, the manager asked. Well, he halted, I just don't think it would be a good idea for my first job. He soon, like Cranmer, regretted what he had said and so called that manager back and explained that it was, as a matter of fact, the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy that he could not work on Sundays. He had to obey God. In his case, in the Lord's kind province, he was still hired to work there every day, but the Lord's day. But it was a bold move, and the Lord's blessing was on it. Job or no job, God's blessing was on it. Boldly tell someone about Jesus. Warn them about the wrath to come. Tell them about Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Only do something, anything, bold for Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, develop a lifelong habit of it, of boldness and courage. In that way, you will find your own place in this noble line of saints and apostles and martyrs around the throne of God who set the Lord before them and therefore were not moved. Amen.